Hi, welcome to Minds Behind Maps. I'm Maxim Lenneman, and this is the latest episode in this experiment where I want to sit down with people who are creating and using anything geospatial to try to understand more about the field and the people in it. My guest today is Tyler Erickson, who is currently a developer advocate at Google and works more specifically on Google Earth Engine. We touch on what being a developer advocate means as well as go behind the scenes on what Google Earth Engine is. To bring in a bit more context and using Google's own words, Earth Engine is a cloud-based geospatial analysis platform that enables users to visualize and analyze satellite images of our planet. In my own words, it's mostly becoming the go-to platform that I'm seeing more and more people who are entering the world of Earth observation go towards. The idea is quite simple. Google does all the data engineering, building all the pipes required to move data around and assemble different data sets together to provide a coherent assembly of data for users to work on. Google handles the complexity of merging different sensors and data sets together, and users focus on combining all of them to make a map of visualization and just overall solve their own problem focusing on the problem itself. I was quite excited to chat with Tyler to learn more about the behind the scenes of this project that's been going on for many years and is growing even more popular in the world of remote sensing. I have to say, I've been a bit skeptical at the growing importance the platform is taking, mostly as in a world of open source, working on a text giant platform where one doesn't own the data nor the compute is something I've always tried to keep a skeptical eye on. That being said, I also want to be able to understand what these projects have to offer in more depth and understand more on how they're being built and the philosophy behind them. I've used Google Earth Engine for a few projects in the past, and I think it's a great tool for many applications. I also believe we should ask questions with regard to the ownership and dependencies that we're creating in this process. We don't simply talk about Google Earth Engine, we also talk on some of Tyler's earlier career and how innovation and new ideas can come out of being curious about different fields that at first glance might seem unrelated to one's interest. I've been thinking a lot recently on how innovation happens and how bringing ideas from different fields can help on that. We also, of course, talk about some of the behind the scenes of how Google Earth Engine came to be, from philosophical designs to more technical ones. Finally, I also want to take more time to go through an application Tyler has worked on that does leverage Earth Engine to understand how it can be used and is used to build real-world solutions. As always, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter. I'm at Max Lenneman, or follow the news related to the podcast at Minds Behind Maps. Links in the show notes. On a quick side note, this marks the first episode of 2022. I hope to bring you many more conversations throughout the year to come, and thank you very much for being here and listening. I hope you enjoy our chat and have a great new year. In the meantime, here is my conversation with Tyler Erickson. Hi, Tyler. Um, welcome to the to the podcast. Thanks a lot for uh, doing this. Um, if you've listened to this, uh, you know that I I always like starting this with the with the same question. So I'd like to ask that same question again. I'd like to ask if you could uh, describe yourself, or how would you describe yourself? Uh, sure. Well, first, thanks thanks for inviting me on. I've actually been listening to your podcast for a while. I know it hasn't been going on for all that long. But... <laughs> been listening to <laughs> and it takes a while to get through them because I, I definitely like the long form format um so let's see how would i describe myself uh i'm going to describe myself in terms of categories i guess okay. 
realizing that it's not always the best way, but it, it can be a good way to convey if somebody has a shared experience, um, you know, very quickly uh, what I've been up to. And one of those is that in some sense, I view myself as an engineer. That's my educational background, uh, civil environmental engineer along the way. And I kind of approach a lot of problems with that mindset. We have a bunch of resources, we have a bunch of laws, we're trying to optimize something. Um, right. So, and I, I think usually when I'm describing myself to, it depends on whom, whom I'm describing myself to, mm -hmm. uh, trying to figure out what the most effective way is to. Um, I am also, I wouldn't say a maps person, I don't normally, describe myself that way unless they have they know nothing about geospatial but if they do right. then I'm not a cartographer I mean I was chuckling when you uh, interviewed I think Joe yeah <laughs> he's like I'm not a maps guy um <laughs> yeah I, I've never taken a cartography uh course in my life I'm, I'm not a GIS guy I do a lot of geospatial programming but GIS is not something I like. but I am a geographer uh at least by training that's my PhD is in geography it it happened more because the advisor that I wanted to work with was in the geography department and he was actually a chemist, but geography is kind of a catch-all for many things spatial. So in some universities, um, that's where the programs are. I was doing hydrology at the time, but I ended up being a geography PhD. Uh, what else would I describe myself as? Uh, earth scientists, that's the community I normally work with, uh, folks that are dealing with something about processes on the earth's surface uh, my backgrounds in water resources hydrology a snow hydrologist actually if you go deep into my background um, but that that's a lot of i think my current work is just working with other earth scientists and understanding what they're trying to do uh, if I'm working with uh, somebody that's, you know, a, a earth scientist, then I probably would describe myself as a technologist because I'm, I'm, you know, I can talk their language. I've been there in terms of doing field work and have that experience, but usually what they might find interesting is the um, informatics work that I've done in the past, uh, geospatial work. Um, so I guess I'm a technologist when I'm in an earth science place. If I'm you know, where I work right now at a technology company, I'm an earth scientist because that's the distinguishing characteristic of it. Um, so I think those are my categories, I would say. And, and as I said, I think those can be useful for like a starting a conversation, but categories often are stereotypes of something. And so they can be, they can be both useful and they can also be, un, you know, stereotype is kind of the negative connotation often of category. And I think about that a lot um, in terms of like, these are models that might be useful and might not be useful, um, whether you're describing people or you're describing a process that's happening on the Earth's surface. And when people get too sucked into a particular type of model, it can be good to start off, but it might be damaging in the long run. And um, so I, I guess, and I can't remember which of your previous speakers it was, they talked about, hey, it's more of the characteristics of the skills. And that, to me, those are more of the non-categorical continuous variables that uh, give a closer picture of what a person is, right, right, you know, right. what they do. Um, so it's often useful to, I think, go into that. So I'm, I'm 
I would say I'm super curious. I just love learning. I was described for a while as a serial grad student that I would go get a degree and then go off and do something else and come back and get a degree and ended up accumulating a bunch of graduate degrees um, because it was just, you know, following what I thought was interesting at the time. It was not to go out and stay in academia, although I was did stay in academia for a while after getting my PhD, but it's more, it was following um, what I was curious about because I love learning. And, and even when I was doing a degree, trying to focus on something, there was all of these like, I don't know if they're distractions, but other things that I was curious about that I learned around the way. And I think that actually has helped me in the long run, although it's, you know, it's frustrating probably to the advisors I had at the time. Um, so yeah, that's like, hey, you had to focus. <laughs> this is actually, I so I let's go there because um, I just finished reading a book that I, I really recommend. It's called Range. I don't know if you heard about that one from David Epstein. And it, it really is like um, valuing that exactly. It was like trying a bunch of different things and it's kind of, making a stance against focus what we what we usually describe as focus which is exactly what you were mentioning here where you have professors that are like no you need to specialize in this thing or, or really focus and it this this book really takes a a stand against that and says there's a lot of value in trying a lot of different things and being able to aggregate all of that and become more of a generalist rather than a, a specialist um, and, and he takes a lot of different examples about cases where bringing dif different people that might have completely different skills to work on the same problem usually yields innovation um, and, and different ways of thinking rather than people who really specialized in that and might have just taken or heard from other topics from people who already are in the field and not really um, thinking of something new. So yeah, has that actually been the case for you? I think so. And, and it definitely is like some of the most interesting things I've learned along the way weren't taught to me by somebody that was in the same field. Right. I guess um, if I think of a few examples about that, uh, I was studying snow as my PhD. And one of the interesting things about snow is that the properties keep changing. So snow falls, it might turn into some solid, super solid dense ice sheet of a glacier, or it might turn into some dangerous slab that avalanches happen. And it totally depends on the process that the snowflakes go under. And one of the most interesting uh, talks I ever heard on that didn't come from anybody in the snow community. It was somebody that did material science and they were trying to make things harder. And there's a process that's called annealing. And depending on how you apply temperature, the rates and to a metal, you can make it change the properties. You can make it quite a bit stronger. Um, and he came and he talked to at a snow conference because he got invited. And <laughs> to me, that was like totally interesting um, because it did describe what you actually see snow grains going through. If you think of the physics of it, there, there's many similarities, many differences to it as well. Um, and then another thing I um, went to study was actually, this is before the snow, but it was uh, geostatistics, spatial statistics. And one of the techniques there for simulating um, realizations, equally likely realizations that you can build your statistics from is called simulated annealing. And they take that physical process and they try to 
simulate that with a computer. You like you move, tweak things and they have certain rules. And if you do it in a certain way, you'll come up with a realization that might inform you more about the process that you're trying to simulate. Um, and like geostatistics, when I was studying that, I was studying groundwater. So it's a, it's a place that is so sparse that you, you don't have much in the way of data. You know, it's, you're trying to study what's underground, putting a well in to actually pull out physical properties or do a pump test of like seeing how water flows is horrendously expensive. So it's a technique that, um, yeah, it, the techniques are different depending on which field you're in, but uh, they can cross over and be, uh, you know, very useful for something else. Like right. annealing is just one example, but there's, yeah, I, I've come across that quite a bit. And, and I often will go and try to learn something with thinking that, hey, it might be useful later on, but I have no idea how, but it sounds really interesting. So let's, let's get a little bit, expand my, uh, expand my conceptual model of like the way the world works and maybe it will connect later on. And maybe it won't. Um, but if you do that enough and you do it in a, a, a way where you're uh, making risks in a good way, um, all of a sudden things will connect later on. And, you know, I was doing a PhD in snow hydrology with somebody that had no background in statistics, but he knew a lot about snow. He dug a lot of snow pits. Uh, so we could connect on that. And I could bring over techniques that I learned for working with sparse data uh, on groundwater, uh, right. you know, more sophisticated mathematical techniques and apply them to snow and see where that goes. Yeah, I was going to ask, how do you think you can um, turn that into a sort of process to, to because it, it does sound like, you know, if we take the story you just told where it's someone from material science who goes to a snow conference, it doesn't feel like there's a process where it's like, if you're in snow, you should look out for, for material scientists. It's really like getting completely outside of that field and, and finding that bridge that is actually pretty hard to find. And if you're not one foot in both of those fields, you actually don't have a way to, to be able to see that so is that for you like curiosity is just that driver that that allows to maybe hopefully like find find those stumble across those things that might be helpful or do you think that there might be something else that helps us solve a lot of those problems because i feel like a lot of really interesting problems get solved like that when people bridge bringing these different things together but it's that process seems very complicated yeah it's um it's very stochastic, I guess. I would say sometimes yes. it works, sometimes it doesn't. Um, I find, uh, well, actually, one of the conferences that I've been going to starting as a student, but throughout my academic and commercial com professional career uh, trajectory is something called AGU, American Geophysical Union. It's um, the largest earth science conference. Uh, currently, I think it's around 25,000, although with COVID, you know, it's probably gonna be smaller <laughs> this year. They're trying to do it uh, in person. Um, but it is, it's kind of amazing. You go there and that's like where the earth scientists, oh, sorry, there's planetary scientists as well. And those are kind of interesting to go and watch their talks or their posters. But you can just walk around for a week. And if you get energized about new ideas and things you didn't know about, uh, it's, it's great. And, and usually what I will do is, uh, you know, there's certain communities that I will want to reconnect with and I'll go to those, but then you get overwhelmed, you know, with that adrenaline of talking to somebody for like 10 hours at a time. And so there's, if you want to kind of tune out for a little bit, you just go walk down the 
know, planetary science aisle and look right, at their right. posters and talk to somebody and just drum up uh, conversations. Um, yeah, I guess I, that would be one of my skills too. It's just like, if you put me in an environment like that with earth scientists, I can usually talk to somebody and find a person that is a connection in between us quite often. Right. Um, you know, I, and I, just cause I, I like doing that and I've been at those large conferences for about 20 years. So making those connections. Um, and that's often how I even find uh, folks now, I guess that work on the products is just like, Hey, I'll just look through the uh, thousands of abstracts and say, see if something looks interesting and then try to find, you know, 10% of them when you're at the conferences. Okay. Uh, wow. That's just walk like around really time consuming effort. But I think it, if you find those people, it's probably really worth it. Sometimes. Uh, yeah. And sometimes yeah. there's no connection, but it's, yeah. it's always, yeah. And it's, it's not always just a scientific connection too. It's kind of a, um, yeah. a culture. I'm always looking for somebody that is collaborative, open to, mm. I don't want to say open to new ideas, um, but they view collaboration and sharing as one of the drivers of their success. And you find that in some people and find that in others. I mean, they're, we can talk about the incentive structure in academia and it's, it's kind of a little bit warped. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, but there are, there are people there that truly value uh, collaboration over right. personal advancement. And I think they are the ones that actually will advance the field more than the ones that are into personal advancement. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, I mean, we can, we can go over that academia. The thing is, like, I'm, I'm very wary that, like, I actually don't know that much about it. And so a lot of what I know from it is, is reported from people. I, I spend a very short time in an in a academic environment and try to get out because I, I saw that quite a bit, like, that it... It, it felt very, in my experience, like there's there's a lot of great stuff that come from it, but it, it didn't foster that, let's bring in new ideas. And so I, I think for me, that that made me go away from it. And the, the I don't know if the industry is like the, the it's the word that I, that's, gets thrown around. Um, that, and I think sometimes it lacks that collaboration as well. So it might've not been necessarily a, a great bet like that. But I think it's it's really interesting outside of academia to in, in like the industry to see how people try to, to do that. And there's incentives there that are also really tricky. Like I find this idea of exploring ideas sometimes really hard uh, to, to find in academia, in, sorry, well, in the industry, because there's this idea of return on investment that, you know, the thing that you, you, you do, it, it should yield something at the end. And we, we're very um, resistant sometimes to, to try out new ideas, to seek out new ideas in hopes that, you know, they might yield something new down the line. And, and then I, I'm, I'm, it's just something that I've been thinking a lot about recently is how do we put that um, investment in? Because I, I really do see it like that as an investment where you have to try out a bunch of stuff. And as you said, sometimes nothing happens, but sometimes something does happen as well. So have you seen that happen also now that I think you're a little bit outside of academia is have you seen that process try to happen as well a little bit where you know you still try out new ideas with new people and things like that and potentially they just don't lead anywhere yeah i think that whether you're in academia or not um that that can be the case um 
I, I guess we're in my current role right now. Yeah, there there are you do little explorations of um, collaborations and partnerships, and sometimes you find all the pieces uh, together. I think I think actually, regardless, you're always looking for whether there's a common um, end goal that mm. interests and both people value. Yeah. And if there's a path to get there and you don't necessarily know that from the first conversation. Um, and if you have worked with somebody multiple times, you might be able to trust that that's okay um, yeah, because yeah. you know the characteristics of that person. Um, but yeah, whether in your ac in academia or not, I think there is uh, some type of calculation that you have of how much risk you can take. And the the parts of academia that I always found a bit frustrating is that you're, you know, you're what is it saying? You stand on the shoulder of giants. You're you're building on what has come before, but the incentive structure for you got to publish in a journal and get cited and you are evaluated by how many publications you put out doesn't really tend to make people want to share so that others can build upon their work because you get funding if you can convince somebody that you are the best researcher for the proposed research that you're doing. And if suddenly there's 10 of them because you shared everything, that can be a disincentive. So it's uh, only if yeah. you can move fast enough and you the people that you share with are also sharing allows you as a group to move faster Mm -hmm. uh, then you can, I think, capture that funding stream. But if you, you know, some people just in academia focus very narrowly on something and they don't want somebody else to be able to do the same thing right. until they're at the end of their career. <laughs> do you think there's a way where we, we can change? I mean, I think this, you know, topic has been explored a lot, but I'm, I'm very curious to ask people like, we've gone a little bit through that. But do you think there's a way in which those intensive, but those incentives can be changed a little bit to, to try to, to foster that also because like the way people collaborate today has changed a lot just in in the past decades like the, the way people communicate the way people work together has, has changed a lot do you think that there's a way to, to change a little bit those incentives to to go towards sharing a lot more to like incentivize that being a thing I think you can lower the barriers to sharing, make it easier. Um, that would have been something that I think what I would have benefited tremendously from when I was in the academia. And uh, to put that sort of in our terms of technologists, it's just like version control is not something that they teach, you know, to somebody in right. science. Like if you're writing, you know, you write software, it's not computer science um, mm -hmm. formal but you're scrappy learning as you go researcher uh, writing software version control is still so valuable. It's like, if I wish I could like look back a year into my past and try to collaborate with myself because I used version control <laughs> when I was a grad student, but um, you know, unless that's taught that skill, it's hard. You don't learn the value of it until you've like used it for a while. And so I often will work with researchers and, you know, hey, share your code with me. And then you get a copy of folders that is final and final version two and final, final. Um, 
you know, it's really hard. And yeah, so sometimes yeah. you have to step back. It's just like, okay, have you heard of software carpentry? They have these great courses that just teach you about mm -hmm. get inversion control. It's such an investment. Go do it. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's good. Um, so part of it is, you know, just lowering the barriers. Sometimes it's just by education, you know, just making people aware of things that they're not aware of that are out there. They just don't know why it's relevant. Um, that, so that's one way. Another way I think is there is both carrots and sticks, I guess, in terms of collaboration, you always want to be, um, I don't know if, is that the saying that you have over there? Yeah, yeah, no, I did like okay. incentivizing <laughs> rather, like, rather than punishing, I guess. is, is Yeah, it's a, I could say both are sort of valuable and sometimes whatever one thing that might be proposed might be viewed from one side as a carrot or the stick, but just the sheer funding that you get in order to work on something, can there be more strings attached to part of this work has to be towards making your work um, somebody can come along and, you know, build on it, replicate on it. And let's see, I was at one conference, uh, a hydrology conference, and, and they, this is a group, Kawazi, that actually is really good at, at sharing. I'm not sure whether it's because they have different funding sources, but they, they, the people in there tend to be very good at uh, sharing their code and things like that, the hydrologists. Um, there is a researcher, uh, James Call, and he I was up there at the presentation and showing how his work, you know, how he's sharing it at the end, you know, puts it on GitHub and stuff. And then he had this comment. He's just like, I'm not done until somebody can actually do what I did in five minutes, you know, get to oh, the point that I put out a paper uh, and can replicate it in five minutes. And I'm, I'm being a little careful with that word reproduce and replicate to me are similar but they're kind of distinct too like which one is important um academics you often hear them saying that they want reproducibility there's a crisis you know something gets published and somebody else can't reproduce it and i think that's true but i think in a cloud era where we have such massive amount of data strict um, reproducibility isn't really the gold standard it's like can somebody actually take your method and replicate it on a new set of data. Because the original data that was there, maybe you were working with Landsat uh, collection one, or even before they got to collection one, it was processed in a variety of different ways over time, thousands of different files. If they came out with Landsat collection two, which they have, do you expect to get strictly the same answer? And I would say, no, don't worry about it if you don't. You don't want the conclusions to change, but strict reproducibility to me is is it's interesting and i right. view that as valuable but if you can replicate a result um with new better calibrated data or for another part of the world that to me is more valuable so well, how can you yeah i think we're in a field where there's a, a lot of potential through things like github like com com everything that touches computer science i think has this huge potential of of the ability to, to reproduce the code. And I, I do hope that that becomes a requirement down the line that if something, it's not just putting a paper out there, but it's, it's also putting a lot of the, the tools that you've developed to, to do that. I've actually been really surprised stumbling, like entering this whole field and just coming into computer science in general and, and everything that touches it to see how open a lot of the things are. Um, granted, sometimes they're preprints, um, but in, 
in in machine learning, for example, a lot of stuff is just open and you can just take it. And I think it it's a great standard, like more and more stuff. People are like, that paper is cool. Where's the code? How can I use it? And I think pushing for that, it's been honestly, I've been very pleasantly surprised to see that push coming from uh, people that are like, yeah, we want that compared to, to other fields. Um, I, I say that all the time. I come from mechanical engineering. That's not the case. Like papers are not always open. And it's like, before you can replicate that, you need the hardware, you need all that stuff. In a world where we can run the code and granted the data might change. I think it's, it's amazing that some, like we're moving towards that. I, I hope that really keeps going in that direction. That's, yeah, I think how it also becomes accessible. And to, to what we were saying earlier, that's how people, I think, from a different field can, if it's, if it's easily available in, in five minutes, you can, you can reuse it. Um, then the, the barrier to just tinkering with stuff and trying it out, um, I don't know, if you're working on, on snow hydrology and someone in material science puts their code out there, you see it at the conference and you can try it out. I, I think that that would be amazing. Um, and and I, I hope it makes me happy to see that the a lot of the research is going towards that direction. It's still not completely there, but I'm glad to see it is it is moving towards that direction. I think it varies depending on which scientific domain you're working on. Like um, the machine learning, I would agree that they tend they have a culture of openness. Um, if somebody can't actually try out and rerun what you've done they probably aren't gonna reference it they're gonna it's, yeah. it's such a fast-moving popular field that i think um being open is an advantage there uh but there are other smaller fields that aren't as fast moving like in the earth sciences where and, and you have a lot of the old guard that uh from you know 20 30 years ago still actively doing the research right they don't quite have that same culture. So um, I do agree that it's shifting and there's been a lot of positive uh, work that different uh, organizations have done in this area to make uh, research, uh, <laughs> research communities uh, yeah. act more in a sharing way. Um, but it, it varies dramatically, I would say. With that, let's, let's move on to, to what you're currently doing um, today. I think um, if I got this right, you're, you're official title is developer advocate for um, Google Earth Engine. Yep. I've actually been curious as to what that means um, because I, I, to be very frank, I actually am not quite sure what that means. So I'd, I'd be very curious to know um, from, from you what that actually means and represents. Um, yeah, so developer advocate, um, kind of, I think it's literally what it says. There are developers out there. I guess the definition of developer could be broad. Like some of them are programmers, many of them are, but there's often products that have developers that are not necessarily programmers. They're using it in a different way. There might be some GUI interface or something like that, but, but there is a group that can make use of a product. And there are folks inside the technology companies that are advocates for those group of people. And I often think of like what my job is usually is understanding what they're trying to do, understanding the, the path that they're taking to try to get their work done and the barriers that they encounter and figuring out how to get them over around or hopefully get rid of the barrier. And it changes all the time. Like the barriers five years ago are not the same barriers that we have right now. And so it does evolve 
uh, quite a bit. And yeah, I, I guess that's the, the biggest summary. And there's a lot of activities that go around with that. Uh, part of it is just education. It's just like showing what are the current capabilities and the pros and cons that we have with the current system right now. Um, so that is writing good documentation, not necessarily more documentation, but uh, the, the right documentation that they're looking for. So it's actually truly useful. Um, hosting events. Uh, we've had a series. We, we have an annual conference right now called Geo for Good. It's actually going to come up in the next month. And up to about three years ago, we had a Earth Engine User Summit, and then we merged the two because there's such an overlap in terms of the participants that it didn't make sense to to, to keep them separate. So, um, you know, putting together events like that, whether it's it's something that we're hosting, bringing together people from over the world, around the world, uh, to to get together and uh, share their experiences, learn. Um, sometimes it's going out to other events like AGU that I mentioned is the big one here in the United States. There's an equivalent EGU, uh, European Geospatial Union, uh, that goes on in Vienna each year. Uh, there's uh, more technology-specific conferences that like for remote sensing. Um, IGAR's Living Planet Symposium is one that's coming up next year. That's going to be great. So, so going to those events, just talking with folks, having a booth, um, participating in sessions, uh, forming, starting to form collaborations to the point that you're actually publishing research and guiding uh, individual groups. Can't do that too often because it's very time intensive. So I'm happy yeah, to be selective <laughs> about who I do that with. Um, and then, so that's a lot of the outreach, you know, the, the, the sharing what the product can do, how it could be uh, beneficial or, or how it might not be beneficial for what you're trying to do. Uh, the other part is the other direction is like, coming back and, and letting the software engineer teams know, you know, are you in the right direction? You, you, okay, you're planning out your next year on features. What should this, how should the product evolve? And Earth Engine has been a great product in terms of, I think, incorporating the community that we are trying to serve into the process. We started off by gathering together folks that were interested in forestry. This is about 10 years ago now. And kind of saying, okay, what are the biggest barriers that you are facing? Um, and then we look at what assets we had available to Google at the time. And sometimes, um, you know, we don't have it, have to build it. Sometimes it's there. Sometimes, you know, it's, it's, it's out there, but we don't have to build it either because somebody else did. <laughs> That's great too. Um, Earth Engine itself came out of, uh, there's an early group called Earth Outreach that is support for uh, nonprofit public benefit organizations that might benefit from geospatial tools. And that's, that's I'm trying to think of what, what year that was. So it's around 2006, seven, I think that it started okay. off. Um, Rebecca Moore uh, discovered or <laughs> put Google Earth to a good use of um, encroachment that a logging company was trying to uh, have a timber permit for her neighborhood in the, the mountains above uh, Silicon Valley, Santa Cruz Mountains. And so Google Earth was kind of newly released at the time, and she used it to great advantage to like tell a story that people could relate to. And that lit kind of an idea among many nonprofits is like, hey, we've got a really important story to tell about the environment. Here's a tool that could do it. Um, and it, you know, it's, it's evolved from there. It's, it's gotten to be a better environmental storytelling tool 
um, over the years, but that was sort of the genesis of Earth Outreach. Um, and oh, oh I, I guess that evolved for a while. The, you know, is, is presentations on Google Earth and what it could do to different conservation groups. Um, at one point, there's a meeting of uh, conservationists down in South America that were looking at the Brazilian Amazon. And during a presentation that was down there showing Google Earth, there's a bunch of scientists that were in the audience that um, came up and said, that's great, we can see it, but there's so much valuable data that you are just displaying as a base map, like a, a background. Mm. You know, we want access to that. And that was right about the time that USGS and NASA said, hey, we're going to make Landsat free and open. So there was this availability of satellite imagery from 40 years and there were these conservation groups that said, hey, we want access to the, the raw imagery for analysis. Right. Uh, and so that's what how that? Earth Engine itself started. Uh, I think this is about, oh, 2008 is when Landsat okay. um, announced that they were making their archive uh, free and open. Okay. And I think it didn't roll out until the next year is when they actually got their data system in, in place to do that. Right. Um, and then Earth Engine was about a year after that. Okay, so that's where also, because I, you know, back then I didn't really know what all of this was. Um, trying to put the pieces together. What what happens there? Do, do you, does, does Earth Engine start ingesting um, all the, the Landsat data? Because kind of, as, as we know, Google Earth Engine today, where you can go there and there's multiple data sets, did it, did it start off like that? Or was it trying to take a different approach? It started off with Landsat, at least, because that was what the forest community was really interested in okay. as a base large data set. I mean, there, there's obviously many other data sets that you have to have in terms to make it useful, like um, political boundaries, watersheds. Those were added over time. And those were, those data sets, were, there were tools to work with that volume of data before, you know, like watershed boundaries and things like that. But there weren't really good tools to deal with something like the Landsat archive. That is, you know, each scene is 500 to 750 megs. Like it's probably even larger now that we have higher, <laughs> uh, higher signal to noise. Um, but they're, they're massive. You know, they fill up a hard drive in just a couple of scenes. Uh, yeah, especially I think in 2008. Um, it's probably not the same hard drives as today. Yeah, so that was, um, you know, there was a, there was a gap, basically. There, there's mm -hmm. this plethora of data that was available um, in USGS and NASA deserve so much credit, I think, uh, for that. Uh, and they inspired other agencies around the world to adopt eventually, you know, similar licenses um, right. for, their, for their data sets. Um, interesting, before I came to Google, I was in academia as a soft money researcher and was leading something, I shouldn't say leading, I was participating in something called America View. Like in the, in Amer in the United States, there's 50 states and about 30 to 40 of them have these state view programs. And they tend to be um, very applied. It's just like practical applications of remote sensing, usually course resolution, Landsat uh, data. How do you make it more accessible to folks that aren't actually necessarily doing research on it, but just, just make it more useful for community college members, state governments, uh, et cetera. 
uh, they do incredible work with very small budget. And, and that's, I, I became the lead for Michigan View at the time. Um, and one of the things, our activities, the, you know, the barrier at the time was getting access to Landsat data because it was free in terms of the license. Like once you had it, you can do whatever you want with it, but it was not free in terms of a distribution cost. It was about $600. And so a researcher would, you know, buy that or somebody would buy it. And then we're like, okay, now we got to put it somewhere where everybody can get access to it. So <laughs> one of our major activities was like setting up these FTP servers. And anytime somebody bought a scene, we were a repository for it that you could put it there. And, you know, we got up hundreds and hundreds of scenes worth tens of thousands of dollars. Uh, but then Landsat opened their archive and just like, okay, that barrier is gone. Right. What yeah. else do we move on to? <laughs> and it's great. And I, I'm, I'm so psyched when something I worked on all of a sudden becomes irrelevant. Because, yeah, but I think it's, uh, it's for the, like, it, it becomes irrelevant, but because that problem is now solved. Yeah, there's plenty more problems. <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah. And so let's, let's continue down that, that story. Like the, the Landsat archive opens up and, and Google picks that up. What happens from there? Like, do people start using it? And if so, who are those, are those people? Because there's those, those scientists that you mentioned earlier mentioned they were interested in, in that. There's, a, there, there's usually a, um, something that needs to happen between the moment someone says they're interested in something and, and they start using it. And so what, what made people come to, to, to Google um, Earth Engine and to, to start using it? Yeah, it definitely wasn't an instantaneous uh, thing. Yeah. And I, am, I have to admit here is like, at this point, I was not at Google. I right. was yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, on the outside watching this thing okay, right. um, happen. And, but the way, when I first started using it as a outside of Google, I was still uh, a researcher in Michigan uh, with that Michigan View connection that I uh, mentioned. And it was at the time, it was a open source Java program that the okay. idea was that you would, um, you know, download this batch of Java data and, or, or code and use it to construct an algorithm that could work on, uh, you know, Landsat data. And I'm not a Java programmer, uh, still not. Not many people in earth sciences are Java programmers, mm, yeah. I would say. So that wasn't the most approachable. So, so there were certain uh, communities that could make use of it. Um, and there was a lot of work that was just going on by the Google engineers at that time, just working with the scientists. What are you trying to do? Okay, we will code that mm -hmm, up. Mm -hmm. um, not particularly scalable. One thing at Google is like, you're always thinking about, okay, you do this once, now you got to be able to scale it to more people or, or it just won't thrive. So. Um, one of the major early changes was, and this probably is around 2001, yes, is that there was a JavaScript and Python API added. And that was right about the time I joined. And one of the first things I did as a developer advocate said, hey, I'm Python programmer. I understand that community. I was participating in uh, OSGEO, the Open Source Geospatial Consortium. And um, for a while, I was... Um, participating in their academic tracks at their annual FOS4G conference, uh, you know, it moves around the world, uh, gathers people together, and they usually, I don't know if they still do this, but they, there's an academic tra track of using um, OSGO products for publishing research, and I, I did that for a while. 
Um, where is I going with that? Uh, but like yeah, how, how, okay, how so Python I, and JavaScript you yeah, mentioning? So I, I was familiar with Python, that community. Um, so one of the first things is like, okay, let's package this up. We're going to put this on PyPy. Uh, later on, a few years later, you know, Conda and Conda Forge grew up. It's like, okay, we're going to package it up, put it there. So the, the folks that come from that community will have an easy way starting to use Earth Engine. It's definitely, if you look at our documentation, it is not the way we teach it. Um, you have to come in with a lot of knowledge, basically, of Python and, and actually the ability to, to look at some of the source code to probably make really good use of it. But it's, it's there. It's been there now for 10 years, that avenue. Um, for it. At the same time, uh, there was something called the Code Editor Playground that was released. And that's, that is still the, the main way that people get to familiar with Earth Engine. Uh, because it it breaks down a lot of the barriers of just getting started. You know, as long as you get whitelisted, then you can log in and within you know ten seconds you're actually like writing code against. <laughs> uh, so it's really great for workshop. It's great for teaching. That's the uh, that's the, you you get whitelisted, you you get access to that, and you have a console in your browser where you can start writing mm -hmm. JavaScript that lets you yep. start querying all the data that's on Google Earth Engine. Yep. Right. So that's sort of the easy path if you just want to try it out. And a lot of our documentation will have links that will open up code within the code editor. Right. Um, yeah. And you know you can instantly visualize stuff around the world, which is quite valuable. It's it's built. It, there's many many layers I would say of Earth Engine or Swiss Army knife is somehow sometimes people describe it as the code editor is a GUI application that handles things like displaying a map down there, uh, a console so you can print output, print charts. It has documentation built in there. There's drawing tools if you want to indicate geometry. Um, so there's a lot of stuff it does for you. You don't have to set up yourself, but it's built on top of a client library for JavaScript. So if you're a Node.js developer, you can have access to the same thing. You just got to build it yourself. Uh, and then same with Python. We have Python client libraries that allow you to do that. Under the hood, Earth Engine knows nothing about JavaScript or Python. It is okay. a, it's kind of interesting. It's, it, there's a REST API and you send a serialized description of what you want done to your data sets. Okay. And those descriptions can be massive. Uh, and then it will return something that you requested, whether it's a map tile, a table, a scalar, many different outputs. Um, but yeah, it doesn't know anything about the, the client languages. And, and that's actually been beneficial for some users is that they, you know, they're not, they don't use Python or JavaScript as their main language, but they're pretty thin client libraries. So there have been folks that use Earth Engine that just write their own because they're working on some other language. Right. And, so that REST uh, API is, yeah. is accessible as well to, to, mm -hmm. to anybody, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We, we don't recommend that you yeah, use it imagine. because that will tend to change more often than the client libraries. The client okay. libraries are sort of like sh uh, shielding you from changes in the system. I have the impression, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but when I first discovered Google Earth Engine, I had the impression that JavaScript was the language that felt was pushed more than Python, and Python felt a little bit like um, a, a second-class citizen. Um, at least that was my impression. Um, first of all, is that the case? And if so, I thought it was kind of interesting because at least from my experience, it felt like a lot of people who were doing the large remote sensing projects were using Python mostly for the scientific computing. So I was kind of a little bit curious as to why that, that was the case, if that actually is the case. 
I think that the code editor was a big driver of that, the, the GUI environment. It was easier to sandbox uh, JavaScript. Yeah. And that especially was the case back when the code ed editor was created. Because um, think of that came out, you know, 2011, 2012, somewhere around there. Um, yeah, and you know, there wasn't the equivalent sandboxing of Python and are you sometimes there, there still isn't, <laughs> it still isn't quite as easy to do that for Python. Um, so it always has been the easier way to get started because of that code editor. And it, being somebody that comes from the Python community, I, I would agree with that. It's like we've spent more time with the, the JavaScript because that's the easier way to teach currently. Um, in recent years, we've been more of a push, uh, had more of a push to bring somewhat parity that you'll start seeing more Python examples, tabs that you can switch back and forth. But there still is a bit of setup. Um, th there's, I always think of that, that with any of these tools, there is a trade-off between ease of use and flexibility, that if you make something that's super flexible, it's kind of hard sometimes to like uh, solve the really easy use cases itself. And so it's always a trick. Um, you know, you make it, um, yeah. you add more buttons to your text editor, it gets more confusing to get started, especially if you, if you don't use it every day. Um, so there, there's a beauty and simplicity, I guess. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, 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 that's also something actually I want to come back to later for the data itself. Um, but before that, I've actually also been quite curious as JavaScript is kind of the language of the internet. Um, and I'm curious as have you seen people who don't come from necessarily the remote sensing or the scientific com computation world, but more from web development or, or this whole aspect of, of, you know, building the internet that really relies on JavaScript a lot, actually jump on JavaScript on, sorry, on Google Earth Engine because it was written in a language that they might be more familiar with? Or has that not really happened that much? I wouldn't say that's um, probably hasn't happened that much um, okay. unless they're a really curious person uh, aside from because if I think of web development, the, geospatial is very a small part of it <laughs> uh, in general. So um, yeah, there, there's some, there's, there's definitely incredibly good web developers that are in some of the scientific research teams and they get hired for that reason. Um, but it, then there's usually somebody guiding them in terms of like the why. Uh, and it's not as simple of just, uh, we need somebody to display an image yeah. on a slippy map or something <laughs> like that. It's, it's much more involved. Yeah, of course. Quite often. So. Yeah, no, I was, I was asking because I, I think something I've realized a lot through my own experiences of, of knowing just a very limited number of, of languages is that I really tend to gravitate towards the ones that I already know. I think the same if, you know, for, for spoken languages, it's like, oh, there's this tool that I can use that's written in this um, language that I know. And then there's this other one that might be better, but that's written in another language that I don't know. More time than not, it's not worth the effort to, as an individual to learn that new language. That's why I've, I've been very curious about that, that whole question of, of like having those two um, and, and thinking about who starts picking up those tools, depending on what programming language gets, gets written. But I'm I'm happy yeah. to see that Python gets a lot of love as well. Yeah, it's it's, it's interesting the by number of users, uh, the JavaScript uh, submissions to Earth Engine are higher. 
There's, there's more people that use JavaScript. But in terms of the actual number of queries, uh, it's it's more equivalent because okay. uh, Python is really good at automation. So if you are trying to do something and automate it, uh, you, well, I, I shouldn't say you can't do that with Node, but but it's very easy to do yeah, that yeah, yeah. in Python. And so you'll find anybody that gets, um, I don't know, finds that they can't do something using the GUI, <laughs> the code editor, they might switch over to, to doing it from the command line, which is actually built on top of our Python API or using the Python API directly. And that used to be kicking off export tasks, uh, canceling export tasks. Um, there's all kinds of stuff that you might want to automate on a regular basis. Yeah, and right. Python is easier to do that. And many, many of the advanced users do use Python for that. Oh, that's pretty interesting to to, to know. I mean, it, it, I think it totally makes sense, but I think that's that's a really interesting uh, number on on there. Um, I, I I do want to move on to the 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 data that's that's there and bounce off of what you just said a little bit earlier about like that flexibility that um, comes with like it's a trade off between the choices that that you make and the flexibility that you gain. One of the things that I think Google Earth Engine does uh, in a very interesting way is that the a lot of the data um, is, is pre-processed in a way where it makes it very easy for different data sets to work together. I think that's like one of the hardest problems that there is in remote sensing is, is taking very different data sets and making them all work together. Um, and I'll, I'll take an example that's, that's quite close to, to the things I've been used to working with, which is the SAR imagery that's on Google Earth Engine. Is, is quite heavily processed compared to what any vendor might usually sell. And I'd, I'd be curious to ask, what was the um, reasoning behind that? Because you do lose a little bit of that flexibility. Like it, it feels like Google Earth Engine is, is quite opinionated on its data um, to use a, a, maybe a term that, that comes up quite a lot in, in computer science. Um, and I find that really interesting. And so I, I'd like to ask, why that is the case and kind of what the reasoning is behind that. Yeah. Um, opinionated. Uh, I don't know if, if you think it, that's not the, the best word. Like I, um, that's just the word that comes to my mind usually when, when talking about things where, you know, it's um, a decision has been made in a specific yeah. way and it makes things simpler for, for a lot of applications, but you do lose a little bit of that flexibility. Yeah. I, I mean, I agree with you. I was just mulling on that word. And and that actually brings to mind ARD. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that is a topic. It's just like, uh, uh, who's Joe that you had on recently? Yeah. I think you got into like ARD. And what he said is not controversial at all, at least in my mind. It's just like, I totally agree <laughs> with him. It, it's like, I, well, I have a lot of opinions, I guess, on ARD. And I've participated in, in those uh, workshops where they're developing standards for ARD and stuff. So analysis-ready um, data, by the way, just oh, to yeah, sorry. explain. Analysis-ready data. Um, I guess one way that I think about it is that uh, the groups that distribute data like USGS, NASA, they have long had multiple levels of products, you know, a level mm -hmm. zero, um, usually it's in the sensor and geometry it's probably not in any regular grid, depending on what type of sensor it is. Uh, and then you have level one where you start and, and the level definitions vary from, I think, provider to provider, yeah. but in generally <laughs> it gets easier to work with, uh, as you move up in, in, 
I think that by the time you get to level four of like NASA, it's like a physical product. It's, it's like a physical measurement that you conceivably could go out in the field and measure and compare directly. So in my mind, for some people that's doing a certain type of analysis, that is analysis ready data. You know, they, they've been doing this for a long period of time. But as you uh, just pointed out, is like, as you put on those processing steps, you're narrowing the flexibility of like what somebody can do with the data. When I was doing my um, work at, um, it was a nonprofit and then became part of an academic uh, group before coming to Google, is like I worked with level zero data quite often because that has the strongest signal if you're really looking at uh, extracting all the data or information that you can out of data. And the fact that it is irregular is a benefit. I mean, my PhD is in geostatistics, so it's, it's like the, the more variability that you have, um, usually the better. If you can have data that's coming in at different resolutions, not always from the same view angle, the spectral characteristics are different, it's harder to analyze, but there is more information that you can extract from it. Um, I like to think of like a lot of what, uh, a lot of remote sensing that I deal with and, and the partners I do is not looking for objects, but it's looking for characterizing phenomena across space and time. And remote sensing is basically just snapshot observations of it that have in its little small windows, like you're not seeing the full spectrum, you're not seeing it at all times, you're not seeing it at perfect spatial resolution. Um, it's, it's basically you got, you're sampling it and if you can recognize that and take advantage of it, your estimation of a continuous model in space and time will be much better than if you had a single uniform data set that's been pre-processed. So where, how, how do you decide where you put that slider? Because as, as you said, there's like, I mean, I view it as a, as a slider, let's yeah. say between that, that level zero, um, which I think might be, for example, a point, point cloud for, for LIDAR data. Um, and then all the way to, to that level four. Um, I mean, again, those numbers kind of vary, but that's the measurements. Um, for something like Google Earth Engine, there's, there's you, you, the slider has been put somewhere specifically. And so I, I wonder how that um, decision has been made or you know, it's probably even changed over time. I, I actually don't have that much experience with it just over the past few years, but I'm, I'm quite curious to, to know how that decision um, goes on to be made. Yeah, usually we're kind of reaching out to the communities that mm -hmm. are most involved in a particular sensor and asking for their advice on it. Um, in some cases, we will have multiple level products. Okay. It's great if they've standardized around something that we can just say, uh -huh. hey, um, you know, we're going to put a copy of this up there. Uh, Earth Engine, its data archive is a mirror, I would say, rather than an archive. We never want to be the original source that you go to for things. We are a copy of very useful data. So okay. so example for Landsat, there'll be a Landsat collection one TOA, raw scenes or TOA. There might be a collection called that. That is something that USGS produces. Um, in some cases, they didn't actually, they gave us a software to run the same process <laughs> to produce it, um, but it's supposed to be a, a exact mirror. Uh, when you get to something like SAR, then we are using the community's um, description of how do you run 
SNAP or the some type of SNAR process, SAR processing. And it has evolved over time. It's like we will put out one there, uh, put out a data set, process lots of scenes to it, and then say, okay, work with this for a while. Tell us what you do like or don't like about it. Um, it's a sort of an iterative process to come upon a processing chain that you really like. And most of the time, I, we're not that opinionated ourselves, but we have folks that we work with in the community that are opinionated about this. And not everybody's going to be happy with the choices that are made, but our job is to make them at least clear, make it clear which choices the data did follow. Um, I didn't say that very well, but <laughs> no, no, no. I see, I see what you mean. And we, we've yeah. actually been talking about the, the the community, and and you know, you, you mentioned earlier that that's a lot of of the job that you're doing today is is talking with these people and understanding what those needs are. I'm actually quite curious, like, what is the who is the the Google Earth Engine community? What what is it constituted mostly of? Is it a, a lot of people um, in academia? Is it like a lot of students? Is it or is it just very diverse and there's not really one category is just like very, very different, broad amount of people. Uh, I think it comes from the history of uh, Earth outreach and just the early goals of Earth Engine is that we have worked with uh, partners like experts in the scientific or nonprofit communities that they have a really good idea of what barriers exist and what needs to be done is and we're trying to build something to solve it for uh, their use cases and the best thing that somebody who wants us to change earth engine can do is describe their use case in something that matches of solving an environmental or social issue uh, because that's you that's our community that we have worked the closest with um, that tends to be some academics but some academics are interested more in just publishing a paper and moving on. And while that can be an interesting milestone, it's not really going to have impact directly on uh, social and environmental issues. So it's more folks that are working on applied science, uh, making the scientific community advance faster so that we could address a social and environmental issue. And then there are nonprofits that we work with that will pick up the end results of that research and use it in terms of uh, their outreach, you know, trying to build awareness of a problem, how change is happening in the world. And sometimes uh, what, what we're getting to now, which I'm pretty excited about, is other people that have a lever to, to make change in the world. So getting Earth Engine into, the, into their hands. So uh, it's not, and sometimes it's not a super broad, well, how do I say this? When I, when I go to the ARD and stack uh, meetings, there were folks that were coming and dealing with satellite data, but they, they have more of a business mindset, you know, building a startup or, or something like that. And they're like, we don't understand Earth Engine. Why are you doing this? And, and that's totally fair because that is not the community that we were building it for. We were building it for folks that are were more focused on sustainability issues. Uh, and they, as I said, they tend to be uh, in the, the nonprofit philanthropic world, some in academia, but, but I'm excited to see that. I mean, that's not always the case. There are, there are companies and they're starting to get a lot more interested in it. And I, I was really heartened to hear a lot of the interviews that you've had is like, they mentioned why they came to geospatial is because of some goal of working on climate change or some type of sustainability related uh, issue. 
And so I think it's, it is somewhat widespread. Um, uh, I guess what I'd like to say is that I'm happy that we're able to expand out access farther because the community is broader than the one that we have been serving up to this uh, 10 years and have been guiding our development. On that note, like one of the things I got really excited about is that um, Google Earth Engine just very recently at the moment we're recording this announced that there's going to be commercial partnerships um, that are going to be done. Um, and I was very excited that this happened just before our interview, because um, this is something I've been thinking about. And, that you know, a lot of people have raised that um aspect of like not really knowing where where Google Earth Engine uh, was going and especially on on the commercial side of things not being very sure about um, whether it was worth going towards or not and so this sounds like that the fact that Google Earth Engine is is um, uh, seeming to be open to, to commercial partnerships at least to me made made a lot of sense and and so I'm just curious as to um, what the current situation is right now I think it's it's still a very early, um, a very early step towards that. And I just just wanted to ask a little bit what that looks like. Are are there already people that you're you're working with on that, and and what do those partnerships look like? Um, I'm I'm just wondering if if you know people are are listening right now and they're wondering about they have this idea of of making something. It's you know the i the the it's not very appealing right now to to think that you're going to have to figure out everything on your own. There's Google Earth Engine, there's Microsoft Planetary Computers, all these things are starting to pop up. Um, but from a, a commercial point of view, I'm, I'm very interested in, in knowing what do those partnerships um, look like or what are they going to look like? Sure. Um, I guess I would say that this was a pretty significant milestone, at least a public announcement about it, but it was something that has been going on for a while. Uh, you okay. We announced some of the partnerships, uh, and if you go to Earth Engine's commercial page, you'll see a list in there that we've been working with uh, for a while. And because there always was a way to use it commercially, but it was not a formal program. It's like yeah. uh, there was researchers that were uh, working with Earth Engine, and then they found it valuable enough that they wanted to have it part of their operations. And the USDA Forest Service is a really good example of that. Is like they they both play in the research publishing world, uh, but they're also, you know, they do operational monitoring of their lands. Uh, and I think that there's, there's quite a few groups that play, or agencies, government agencies that play in both those worlds. Um, and then the other thing that was going on is that uh, people would be using Earth Engine when they were in their college education and they go off to get jobs uh, <laughs> in companies around the world. And they're like, hey, we've experienced this. We, we gotta get access to this. There's so much we could do in this, in this new role. So uh, recognizing that that is occurring, wanna give uh, a way for those companies that have already the capacity to use Earth Engine uh, a way to do so. And so it is a private preview at this point. So it's limited, um, not wide open, and that will change. Uh, you know, pricing has not been announced. That will be determined too in terms of um, working with the, these partners. But it's a, it's good. Um, I think having a public statement about what's been going on for a while, <laughs> I would say. Yeah. And I'm very excited about it because, as I said earlier, is like 
these groups, if you're in the government or in a multinational corporation or even like startups too, it's like they may be some of the largest levers of impacting real change, yeah, depending on yeah. what they come up with, uh, because they affect a lot of the natural resources, uh, either you know the governments that are managing domestically or the multinationals that have supply chains spreading around the world. They, what they do has a big impact on everyone. So helping them make good decisions is, is totally aligned with our goals. And I'm very excited about that. I think it's, it's also probably very different levers from, from the, the NGOs that you might be working with. If, if you start working directly with, with big multinationals or, or governments or startups, I'm, I'm guessing that also broadens the horizon of, of as you said, levers that, that you can pull that can create change down the line. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, and we recognize that they will be different to work with. And, yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> uh, so, um, I mean, my one of the great things about the announcement as well is just the use of Earth Engine to date, the, the folks that have been using it in a, a free manner, the, the nonprofits, academics, stuff like that, we're very clear that is unchanged. Right. It's just we're inviting some additional people to the party, party I guess. Right. Really I guess so. We're still a bit too early. We're going to have to chat again later when, when things <laughs> open up a bit more. Yep. Um, one of the things I'm, I'm curious as well is, um, is there a, a way where a lot of the times when you start working on a, on a problem that has a geospatial component, you're not quite sure what the data that you're going to need to use is. And so one of the things I've, I've been quite curious is, how, is there a way where, where you can also bring in kind of your own data to, to Google Earth Engine or um, take what comes out of that and then try to mix and match all of that as well? Um, because there is this, you might know you, you need um, Landsat data, for example, but Maybe you want to validate that with some ground sensors that you have that aren't currently part of, of Google Earth Engine. And um, I just haven't explored that part actually that much. But I'm curious as to, is, is that process um, possible? And is that actually something that happens quite often if it is? I would say, yeah. I mean, for any um, elaborate analysis, you're going to want to be bringing in your yeah. own uh, specialized data. So yes. Um, there, there, there's multiple ways to get it in. At the REST level, there's a way to ingest a raster or vector data set in. Our client libraries support that as well. If you get into the code editor, there's some task panes mm-hmm. that allow you to kick off a import geotiff or import shapefile or CSV job, and it will appear. Uh, and it, it's nice that it, it's part of... Uh, from a technology perspective, it looks the same as the public data, but it is uh, ACLED or the, the access control is private to you, whoever uploaded it. And right. you can, similar to Google Docs, you can choose to share it with other individuals or groups or make it publicly accessible mm-hmm. to anybody that has uh, opened it up. Um, so that works, but it works for smaller data sets. The, the, the reason that we have Landsat in there, the full archive is that we've been ingesting it for years. I mean, <laughs> so it, it, 
there's so much data that there's only so much data that you can bring in by that method. And we do uh, give 250 megs of default storage for anybody that signs up that you can uh, fill up with your own data. Uh, the other way to get data into Earth Engine for raster data, at least, is that you can put cloud optimized geotiffs on cloud storage and then just refer to them. So in that way, you don't have to go through the ingestion process. There's a bit of a performance penalty um, because we've optimized the raster reading for native Earth Engine data, as opposed to what can be read uh, from cloud storage. Um, but depending on what you're trying to do, that might be a totally viable option. If it is training data, then you're probably easier just to bring it in because it won't usually be as that massive. Um, so that's getting data in, uh, and then the 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 other way around is fine as well too. You can pretty much export any object that you've created in Earth Engine, but you just have to define you know at what resolution, what projection, where is the destination. If it's a small amount of data, you can download it through your browser. If it's larger, you might put it in Google Drive. Um, if it's really massive, then you're probably going to be using cloud storage if you're exporting a continent or something like that. Um, so yeah, it's, it, it is possible there are, when you're moving that much data, regardless of what is generating it, uh, yeah. it can take a while. So we try to use the tools that are built for yeah, managing yeah. the appropriate amount of data. I can imagine also a lot of those tools have changed over even the, over the time that you've been at, at, at Google working there. Um, I can imagine a lot of these things have, have changed as well. And I'm actually quite curious, how do you think, do you think there's anything that you can already foresee over the next few years that, that might come to change to, on, on what Google Earth Engine looks like? I mean, that we can talk of as well, um, but like, do, do you think there's like any big major changes that might happen on, on, a, on a time scale of, uh, you know, five years or something like that? I guess those are hard to know <laughs> yeah, at this point. <laughs> and, and well, I know <laughs> it's one of those things that, as I said, we go back to our community quite often and say, all right, what's your current barrier? And sometimes, yes, we can look out uh, a little farther and see things that are coming down the pipe. Maybe it's a new satellite data type that is being launched that we know is going to be valuable and we could plan for that. Um, there is so much potential for, I guess many people call it data fusion, but I just think of it as observations of a phenomena with different sensors. You know, um, to me, it's like taking advantage of the fact that there are all these different uh, modalities of data collection. And that I think is something that Earth Engine can do quite well, but it's been underutilized. Um, as you mentioned before, um, you said it was easy to combine data sets together and, and we, what we were able to do is, is store it in its native projection resolution bit depth and then do a reprojection on the fly with pretty much anything, which allows that, um, you know, choosing the appropriate output uh, is easier if you have access to a low level product. Uh, so back to our discussion of ARD is like we try to keep the the um, reprojection advances and even the cloud masking um, to be options that the users can select and apply on the fly, as opposed to pre-baking them. Right. So if I understand correctly, you're saying that the approach you're trying to take is, is rather than having those stored pre-processed products, rather have the ability to rerun them on the fly. 
um, depending on whatever is required and yeah. is needed. And it is a trade-off. I mean, some things yeah. take too long to run on the fly and um, it's not, not worth it. I, <laughs> if I go back to an earlier example, I spent a good period of time coding up the um, F-mask cloud masking algorithm for Landsat scenes in Earth Engine. Uh, and it was pretty flexible. You could choose your thresholds mm. uh, that you wanted to mask out. Uh, but then USGS, a few years later, introduced a um, quality band that basically ran FMask or a version of it, they, they call CFMask, for three different thresholds, I think. Right. Okay. <laughs> and at that point, we're like, okay, our, we, it wasn't worth the flexibility that we, yeah. we had made available and the speed that it ran in Earth Engine wasn't worth maintaining anymore. So we were like, ah, oh, we'll take that out. We'll simplify our system because now right. we can go back to. Um, yeah. I think that's actually a very interesting trade off because I, I think um, a, a lot of the things that I hear a lot of the time is that storage is, is cheaper than compute. And so you wouldn't want to be able to, to rerun those um, all the time. You'd, you'd want to do it once and then and then be able to store it. But I also guess that if Google is taking a crack at that, that's probably different economics that um, regulate how that happens. It is a trade-off. And that comes into our design of like, what do we cache uh, to mm. reuse rather than recomputing? Um, and, you know, cache... Uh, causes it takes storage too, so it's yeah. always a trade off of what do we cache uh, and how long does it stay around. Um, I think the biggest uh, driver is bandwidth in most of these calculations. It's just like you have to figure out how to transfer as little data as possible to the um, end user. To do the you end mean, user. Or... Okay, yeah, right, yeah. yeah. I mean, so you want you want to do the analysis early on, so you can transfer really small things. Sometimes they're just like JPEGs, PNGs um, to make especially if you're building like a application um, that is reactive to a user's inputs. And some user inputs you could fold into an algorithm and still get back quick results. Other ones uh, you, you probably will make it, it'll take too long and the user will be get bored with it. So it's always a little bit right, of a right. trade off, yeah. but, the, but the bandwidth thing is, is interesting. That's a really good point. I, I think I, maybe very naively never had thought about that, but that's also a consideration that has to come up is, is like, because you're displaying the results of those analysis, sorry, directly on, on the um, user's browser, rather than something where um, a developer is running on a local machine or they're um, SSH'd into a, 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 a remote machine and you know that bandwidth doesn't really matter. Here, it really is something that is, that that extra layer has been added. And I, I guess I just never really thought about it, but I can imagine that's that's something that really comes into consideration as well. Um, I think I could geek out for hours on like exactly all the implementations that have been done for, for Google Earth Engine, but I, I do want to move on a little bit. Um, there's one project that I think you've, you've worked on that I wanted to talk a little bit about, which is called um, OpenET, um, mm -hmm. I think is, is, the, is the name of it. And so that's about... Um, water use. And so um, I think you can describe that better than I can. And I'd, I'd just like to, to know if you could describe a little bit what that project um, is. And um, yeah, we can go on from there. Uh, sure. So the project is called OpenET. ET in this case uh, is not the extraterrestrial. <laughs> it is <laughs> evapotranspiration. So 
the easiest way to describe that is water transfer from the earth into the atmosphere by two different methods. One is evaporation. So if you have water coming off of soil or open water, like a reservoir, uh, it goes from liquid to gas into the atmosphere and that's or evaporation. And if a plant is involved, that is pulling it up through its root system and releasing it through, um, through the process you know, of growing, that's transpiration. And so it is a very important process because there is so much agricultural production that goes on throughout the world. And in many parts of the world, uh, they're water limited. And so making efficient use of water uh, for agriculture is something that um, is very important to folks that either use or manage, manage water. Um, it's a very hard thing to measure, even if you go out in the field, like think of if you go into a field of corn or wheat or whatever, how do you figure out how much water is actually going up there? You can install uh, really detailed meteorological towers that will measure fluxes uh, in terms of which way is the wind blowing, what is the humidity near the ground, and how does that change as you go up in height? But those tend to be point measurements that are really hard to maintain or, you know, they require somebody to maintain them. It's not like a thermometer. <laughs> um, so it's getting ground data is really tough. And part of the OpenET project is looking at all the places where ground measurements were taken and cleaning them up so that the scientific community that is trying to estimate evapotranspiration from remote sensing has a really good ground reference data. And I hate the word ground truth because <laughs> you gotta realize that anytime there's measurements out there, they have errors uh, in, in them. Um, but that's kudos to OpenET and the, and the funders of OpenET for identifying that that is such a key component. Um, and as a little tangent, I mean, I, I think that is one of the biggest things that people have to focus, focus on for remote sensing is like, what is the quality of the reference data that you are comparing your estimates to and where did that come from? Uh, when I was a grad student, I was skiing around in the watershed of Colorado trying to fix electronics in winter that measured snowmelt. And if you think that data was perfectly accurate, I mean, you haven't spent much time out in the, the field. Um, and even the other data that I was measuring quite often was snow depth. And you get an army of people with these long poles and they are probing the ground, trying to figure out uh, how much snow is there, the snow depth, not to figure out how much water content there is. But if you put somebody like that on skis and you ask them to go up a valley, they're gonna avoid rocks because it's unpleasant to either walk over right. rocks with your skis or for other reasons. So you get biased sampling. And I think that that goes for almost any case that you have ground reference data. There is some type of, uh, it, it's very rare that you don't have um, some type of issues with the collection of data. So um, validation of remotely sensed data is kind of a tricky topic. And I, I kind of, when I see that in papers, when they say, yeah, it's been validated, I'm like, well, I don't know. I don't know if you, that means what you think it means. Um, anyway, that's a tangent. I, I'm saying that OpenET is doing a great job in a really difficult uh, situation for that. Um, the other thing that's really interesting about OpenET is that the science of estimating evapotranspiration from water 
has been ongoing for the last couple of decades. There are groups around the world, uh, research groups in academia or government research ads that have developed these models. They are usually based on some simplification of an energy balance model, which means that if you figure out what the temperature change is, that and you know that energy uh, used for that temperature change is the transformation of water from liquid to vapor you can get an estimate of how much water is going on but there's all kinds of confounding um, things that are going on at the same time so that's why these algorithms tend to be um, somewhat tricky and they have different simplifications they don't all yield the same results uh, but those that field have been evolving as i said for you know last two decades and it was really hard to compare results because they're all written in different systems you know they somebody might need idl or c or python or something like that and so it's very rare that more than one of them was, was run on the same set of data and as with most things in the natural world the variability is huge uh, when you go from site to site so one thing that OpenET was able to do is get six of these ET models from some of the leading researchers all ported into the same system so they can work on the same inputs. Often it's Landsat data because it has a thermal sensor, uh, but other land cover data sets, uh, meteorological data sets are important uh, for, the, for these models. Uh, they could run them. Um, all in the same place. So you, you sort of could come up with an ensemble of results uh, and models are known to perform better in whatever area they were developed for. for so some of them do better over forest, some of them estimate you know, reservoir evaporation better than others. Um, but it was really easy for these modeling teams to compare. And so one thing that actually slowed down, I would say the release of OpenET is that once they saw how their model was comparing, they immediately saw areas that they could probably fix and it, it became this collaborative <laughs> feedback um, right. you know they're no longer competing for funding because we had the funding part solved for a while it came from uh, philanthropic uh, organizations uh, and so it sped up science i would say it's just like they had these rapid iterations of releases of their models and they would just want to run it again over all the areas where they had ground reference data uh, and that's happened a few times in that at some point you have to say, okay, you got as far as you can for now, we have to right, release right. the product, we'll come back and do, you know, improvements in the future as well. Uh, but for me, that was totally exciting. It was like using um, a carrot, uh, I guess, it's philanthropic funding from a different source that had different rules than the normal set of funding that allowed, allowed these folks to collaborate together and move, move the needle further. They also did a really good job uh, and credits to uh, EDF, the Environmental Defense Fund, who is the, doing project management for OpenET, of identifying a diverse set of use cases uh, from conservation groups, uh, agricultural collectives, uh, water irrigation um, districts, state agencies, trying to figure out what they really need so that we're not just designing the shiniest data generating platform, but make it actually you know simplified enough so it's actually going to be used so serving both the scientific um community moving the state of the science of uh, uh, estimation of evaporation forward but then also really getting practical results and the website that we that was uh, announced just a few weeks ago is pretty spectacular i mean you get to go look throughout the western u.s where water is definitely an issue water usage and you can either look at the broad scale raster view of 
each month how much uh, evapotranspiration is estimated from these six different models, or you can look at it aggregated into individual agricultural fields and look at that history and just making that open, you know, it's open ET. The idea is to make yeah. <laughs> it as openly accessible to everyone so that everybody has a, a level playing field of where they're starting. You know, the best available science that you can start now having a discussion with right. a rigorous peer-reviewed scientific backdrop of something that's really hard to measure. So I actually want to ask like about those finding those use cases, but because um, as, as someone who has, uh, I also consider myself an engineer and I understand the technical problems and I understand how you solve some of those, but how you put that in the hands of someone and that they go like, ah, this is actually useful for what I'm trying to solve is an entirely different problem. And one where there isn't any documentation or it's very different. And so I'm, I'm quite curious to ask is like, what was the process like for that? Because one of the things I was very surprised uh, and pleasantly surprised on and looking at the, the OpenET website is that the use case category looks massive. It's, it's not just one use case. It looks like there are multiple ones and it, it feels like, oh, this is something that is solving many different problems and isn't looking for solutions, but rather brings in a lot of value. Um, at least that's, that's the feeling I had from looking at the website. And so I'd be quite curious to, 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 to ask, like, what the, was that process like and how was that um, process baked into also building that, that solution in the first place? Yeah, the, I guess the process was, um, I, I will say this in terms of a, a statistician, it's like there, there's a lot of unknowns <laughs> out there and you don't know what the right process is to yeah. start off with it, but you have some evidence based on past successes of what mm -hmm. you should do. And for me, that is going to events where there's people that have knowledge that I don't that um, that at least I have enough to be able to take part in the conversation, but I don't know what the solution is. So we're, we're looking at the outside world for what guiding what we should do. And in this case, it was being invited to go to a, I guess you'd call it a think tank meeting at Aspen, where they get a bunch of academics, uh, government folks together, philanthropies. And it was around, I don't know, 30, 40 people. It's called the Aspen Water Institute. I might have that name wrong, but that was about six years ago. And you fly in there and give a little presentation. I, you know, I showed them what was going on with Earth Engine, and then you listen to like everybody else give their presentation on what they're working on. But then it's a meeting where it's off the record in terms of nobody reports out what what is. Uh, being decided like you don't attribute mm -hmm. it to any particular person but it allows for a lot of free flowing conversation so it attracts people that have right. strong opinionated ideas and i got totally intrigued by like some of the participants there that were from uh they were from philanthropies and that is a group that i hadn't worked with much before and so hey the as I said, this is sort of my skills. Like I find somebody that I'm curious about. I'm going to go find them at meetings in, in here. It was kind of easy because there's only like 30 of them. And so just so started talking with two folks. One of them's from the SD Bechtel Jr. Foundation. And another one was from something that was called the Water Funders Initiative. And the Water Funders Initiative was a collection of philanthropies that cared about water issues. So they totally knew what the use cases were but they didn't know how to address them all and have large scale impact. 
And so it was, there was a sense that maybe something was there. So we invited them to come to Google and tell us more about what they thought the issues were within the, in the areas of the Western United States where they were focusing on, and they did that. And we once again told them a little bit more about what technology potentially could uh, help with. And then we figure out that there's not the correct people in the room. So you start inviting the people that are at the intersection of that in research uh, to come and do a, uh, you know, a meeting. I think we did that NASA Ames. We convened about 50 folks that work in the area of doing research in this area and said, hey, you're going to educate a bunch of philanthropists that have money. <laughs> you know, show what's possible uh, here. And, and so we mediated that. Uh, it seemed to have enough traction that there was interest from the philanthropies in funding this type of idea. So they gave some seed money to the Environmental Defense Fund to organize a project. And they came up with, uh, you know, organize the use cases, as you've seen, they did a great job of that, uh, figured out who were the key folks that they wanted to invite. And it's changed a little bit over time. You know, our, what we originally we set out to do didn't quite come to fruition in terms of all of the, the people that were there, but they, they got it right, I think, in a large part of like they, they said, hey, we're going to spend a lot of time on doing networking with these end users. I mean, that's a huge part of the budget. And they had annual meetings, you know, trying to get constant feedback along the way, like this is what we're working on. Does it seem they're going in the right direction? Uh, they got a fabulous team to build the website, uh, a group called Habitat 7 that had done a lot of sustainability related geospatial websites before, uh, like in terms of uh, US climate data. They have lots of great, great stuff there. Um, and I guess at that point, it, it looked like a viable enough project that other philanthropies wanted to chip in money uh, and then EDF could be the one that is actually doing project management to organize these six different research groups. And then it was a process of many years of actually gathering all that ground yeah, reference data, um, porting the models to Earth Engine, getting them to run, doing the revisions because they wanted to improve them. Um, so it's been great. I mean, they are they are strong users of Earth Engine. They we I'm very proud that we built a lot of capacity that is outside of Google to do this type of work, and that involves um, back to what we were saying that you know the importance of version controls. Like they're all over it now. <laughs> they oh, see great. the value after working for years and trying yeah. to coordinate multiple models that are running on the same data. Um, that's the only way they can manage that type of complexity. Um, yeah, and, and in some sense, it's just sort of just getting started in some right. ways. Like this is the initial release. Um, they have plans for rolling out an API in the spring that mm -hmm. will allow much more uh, fine control over the data that is being uh, collected and allow to integrate it in other software that, that needs this water uh, use input. I want to come back to one of the things you said at the very beginning or around the beginning of this conversation, which is telling telling stories. Um, this is one of the things that I'm slowly starting to, to really discover, like that the power of just telling a story. And I, I really wonder, do you think um, the work that you've done, for example, at OpenET, can that also be used to, to tell stories about things like water management? Do you think there is room for that as well to, to, to do some of that education, to do some of that outreach back to what is possible with that. I mean, just what you were saying earlier about those researchers that talk to philanthropists, I bet that's putting on a story, like telling that story about what you can do 
um, and, and making that connection with people that, you know, we love numbers, we love statistics, we love tech and everything, but I think that doesn't connect with everybody, but stories really do. And so I'm really curious in, in that um, context, have, have you seen it being used um, also, or, or do you see it being used to, to tell a story about um, leveraging that data, but, but for the sake of storytelling to, to make that more accessible to people who might not get super excited like us about this, this great platform? Yeah, I guess if you're referring to the stories of OpenET, that is sometimes a little bit tricky, like similar to uh, geospatial in terms of <laughs> being an issue. Uh, water is one of these things is like everybody uses it, but they don't think about it all that much. So it, it gets certain people excited and the stories of how this data transparency um, might excite them. So, uh, and I think EDF has done a pretty good job of doing that in a, a careful manner. Um, another thing I would say, it particularly uh, applies to water, but also many other natural resources I think are the same way is that transparency of this information is threatening to some folks. And um, you have to be mindful of that when you're, you're doing your outreach and storytelling. Um, it is transparency in my mind is generally a very good thing, but it's, it, you gotta be mindful of that. There are players <laughs> that it, it, it changes the status quo and that's not going to make everybody happy. Uh, I think it's easier to talk about that in terms of deforestation, like monitoring, um, that, that the transparency I think can always bring positive change because you see where it's going on and then somebody will have to explain themselves if you're, if you're doing that a very large scale. Um, and I would say that some of the early work that we did with Earth Engine and supporting groups that were trying to get out information and tell a story about deforestation in Brazil were successful in terms of, you know, Brazil used to report numbers in terms of deforestation, but no GIS-like products. So, it, it was sort of a little bit of, uh, trust me, you know, this is the number that we're reporting. It's the official number. But when a group would say, okay, so where is that deforestation? Yeah. What are you <laughs> counting it as? And what are you not counting it as? Um, that wasn't happening, but with the transparency that uh, Earth Engine brought, these um, watchdog groups could produce their own maps and say, hey, this does not jive with what you're actually reporting at the national level. And then Brazil started reporting, uh, you know, spatially explicit information uh, around with it. So then it helped that conversation around. I wouldn't say that is, uh, there's so many confounding factors that I wouldn't say that's necessarily solved it. I mean, Brazil is still deforesting. Uh, you know, there's so many other things, political, cultural. Um, and uh, I guess one part about that uh, as a little bit of a tangent, I, I realized that I, and many in our industry are just in a place where it's easy to like say, hey, this should be done because we are comfortable in a, in a sense. You know, it's, it's like we're not affected day to day uh, trying to survive in a way that many communities around the world that are using natural resources are. Um, so you also have to be compassionate about like <laughs> when you're trying to bring change, it impacts folks. Even if there is true like environmental degradation going on, there's many, if you stop that, uh, there's other impacts that might be equally as um, important that might yeah, come, come from trying I think, to stop. 
this is one of the things I'm 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 learning, and I, I want to learn more through those conversations. The conversations like this is, is talking to people who actually have done it, and realize well, you know, making the platform was just like half the work. Um, then it's it's having it's that compassion. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> to me, it's like it's not even half. Yeah, I mean, or not even it, half. Yeah, if you think of it as like um, now producing national scale outputs, it's not that novel a thing anymore. Yeah, it's true. like it can be done, but actually producing something that is meaningful, that people can actually make a decision on, that they trust the quality of that that work of usually it's you know generating a global scale product is now on the order of days to you know a week or something like that for for many different companies, but the work that is proving that it is useful like doing the scientific validation against ground reference data that can take years yeah and then once you have that you know there's many folks around the world that don't care i mean they're going to act in the same way it's just because we've generated this knowledge um we still have a lot of work of doing the communication to raise the awareness of everybody who's impacted and then getting it into the hands of decision makers um so i, I guess um if I move away, I guess from uh, staying on storytelling, but moving away from OpenET, uh, it's like one of the great things that Earth Outreach has done is just helping people, environmental causes, tell their stories on things like Google Earth so that people have a frame of reference uh, to it. Uh, you know, there, there's work that's done on landmine removal. There is great work that the Jane Goodall uh, Foundation has done in terms of biodiversity uh, tracking and how that has changed uh, in Tanzania and other areas uh malaria mapping uh you just think of all these things where you're just bringing more awareness it's not just like a number that you read or or a little image it's something that you can sort more interact with uh and there's some there's a great part of google earth where there there are really highly curated stories that will allow you to explore people's homes around the world or you know indigenous communities um, which i think is great so that to me, that that's more of the storytelling platform. Earth Engine is something that can generate data that you might want to tell a story about, but there there are much richer, I guess, storytelling platforms that are available. Yeah, I, I'm. I think a big believer in 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 us trying to. I mean, us as as in that the, this whole field of geospatial, but just data in general of, of leveraging that to to connect to to people. I think just. The, the simple things like when I, I talk to my mom about what I do, I don't tell her about, oh, I, I process like 10 terabytes of data. It's like, no, I, I tell the story of the problem we're, we're trying to solve. And then, oh, it so happens that, um, as you were saying earlier, if, if we were to measure that with on, on the ground, it would take uh, a lot of people, a lot of uh, infrastructure, things like that. And so I can do that from my laptop to a certain degree and that solves 80 percent of that specific problem so i'm a big believer in that and and i think there's definitely value and and a lot of room to to keep telling those stories i think that's how we connect with with the people um out there who, who just don't have any idea what <laughs> this whole space and, and satellite thing is is about um i think um i this is actually a nice place to to, to leave it there um again i i finished these off always by asking the same thing. Um, and, and, you know, you've, you've listened to these, so you, you know, what's coming. Uh, I'd like to ask if you have any book recommendations, um, about anything, just geospatial or not, or movies or, or podcasts, documentaries, series, and any media in general that you think has been, um, in, inspiring, then that might be worth sharing. Yeah. Um, I think the one I'd start off with, because I, 
it touches on a lot of kind of my interests is something that's called Bicycle Diaries. And it's by David Byrne, who is um, one of the founders of Talking Heads. But it is a book that is just his travels of the world, uh, going to different places and bringing his folding bicycle most of the time. So he could like pedal around the cities. And it, it talks a lot about culture, music, politics. Um, to me, that was totally interesting. And they're all like short little chapters. Uh, so that's one that I've really liked. Uh, when I do travel, uh, and that's one of the things I've really missed out of on from the pandemic. I don't get to go to the international science conferences or haven't for a while. But when I go to these areas around the world, I love to get like a local history book. And okay. sometimes, you know, they're not necessarily even professional authors or something like that, but they, they did the work of like figuring out what stories I have gone on, whether it's a century or two centuries, depending on like where you are in the world. Uh, I find those to be really interesting. Uh, uh, I guess other things that I, I don't have a lot of time, I would say to dive into books so much now, yeah. um, unless it's like reading to my kids. So, uh, <laughs> it's a lot of They're great books for, for kids things. as well that people come back to much later. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I do enjoy that part, but, uh, the often are, yeah, repeats of what I read earlier. Um, I would say one thing that does entertain me, and this is actually a little bit coincidentally of like when we first had our conversation is like uh, bikepacking. There is yeah. a website called bikepacking.com and it has once again, these stories, not by professional authors, but they just tell you about little adventures around the world and what they explore. Cause I love exploring things by bike. I think um, that's one thing that I agree with that David Byrne is like, that's one of the best ways to like explore a lot of area cause you can travel far but yeah. still be kind of part of it. And, and that's the first time I ever came over to Europe was, you know, I got off the plane in uh, Frankfurt, I guess, and assembled my bike and pedaled out of there. Right. Uh, and then spent like, uh, I don't know, two months <laughs> pedaling around with a friend. Um, so yeah, bikepacking.com. That's a little pitch for a really small niche community, but just with beautiful imagery and stories in there about exploring the world. Yeah. I'll definitely put uh, that. Um, I'm like, we, we, we did start um, getting in contact when we were both bikepacking. So um, I think, yeah, I can, I can totally relate to that. Um, I think in, uh, I was going to say another one that I've mm -hmm. really been interested in, and this is not actually the content, but it's more the platform is, is Jupyter book. Um, it is an open source project of using, you know, the Jupyter technology, which we didn't talk about too much in this, but I think it's highly influential. Yeah. Um, and it's a way that people are just like writing their own interactive books. I mean, for, okay. uh, with the ability to like get in there and run the code. And I find that like fascinating. Um, so I haven't read many of the books in there, but I just, I, I'm amazed at that technology. Uh, and another similar one that is fast pages, which is yes. just a, that's what I was thinking about. Web. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's a, it's a longer form version. I think of fast pages in some ways, it okay. kind of scratches the same edges. Uh, and then the final one I would, mentioned to folks uh and i mean we talked a little bit about collaboration and how people get along and how we uh can influence that there's uh, a game designer her name is nikki case um and she wrote something called the evolution of trust and it's it's this little i guess it's a game i don't know it's it's an educational something on the web that you, mm -hmm. you play along with and it it brings you through some early game theory concepts and it's about how communities that interact over time in multiple ways 
like how should they behave and what actors have the most influence on the community and it's fascinating i mean it's it's that's one of the things yeah i want to show my like little kid because <laughs> he'll, he'll understand it <laughs> mm. but it's like a high level concept too as well as what all these people that are studying game theory no i love so, this anyway. i i should i don't ask about people if they have game recommendations but i i'm a big fan of those i think from from small games um, like the one that you seem to be talking about all the way up to, to really massively complicated AAA games. I think there's a lot of experience that can be um, communicated and transferred to that medium. And so I, I just love that recommendation as well. I'll be sure to check it out and, and put it in the show notes. Yeah. I'm not actually even sure I'd really call it a game. I, she is a game designer. Right. Uh, I had read about it, but it's just this, it's information in a little bit of a try things out and push some buttons form uh, rather than a full game. Um, but yeah, I, I, I'm fascinated by how well of a communication vehicle it can yeah. be for somebody that is, is skilled in that way. Yeah. Well, awesome. Um, Tyler, thanks a lot. This, this was a, a, an amazing conversation. This was, this was great. Thank you for spending some of your valuable time with me. Well, thank you. I really enjoyed this and I look forward to hearing more of your podcasts in the future. I'm really excited that you're doing these long form ones because I've learned so much from listening to your past speakers. Some I've met before, some I've just heard of before, but I learned something from listening to each one. Thank you very much. 